This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. and welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan and this show is brought to you on behalf of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. Today I'll be talking to Dunedin artist Victoria McIntosh, but first here's DPAC Society President Ross Curry with the latest on the Dunedin arts scene. This is Snapshot. Ross, let's start with what's happening in Port Chalmers this month. Robert Scott and Dallas Henley from the PC Art Gallery in Port Chalmers are working through September with five local West Harbour schools and 80 kids to create works for an October show. This gallery is always supportive of local artists and the project is funded by West Harbour Community Board and the Otago Community Trust. That sounds brilliant. Moving back into town, what about some of the dealer galleries in Dunedin? The Brett McDowell Gallery has an exhibition of works from the late Joanna Margaret Paul called Love Letter. The show runs from September the 15th until October the 5th. There are works in her estate. The works are described as small and quiet. At the Milford Gallery, local popular painter Nigel Brown will be showing his recent work until October the 2nd, from September the 8th. Nigel's work will include paintings and cut-out works. In this show, he has a particular focus on the ruru, or mōpōk, which he sees as the distinctive cry of Aotearoa and a visual symbol across cultures. Nigel will be giving a talk on his exhibition on Saturday, the 9th of September at 11 o'clock. John Parker, the potter, will also have work on show alongside Nigel. At St Clair's FE29 Gallery, Philippa Blair has a show of her vibrant oil paintings until September the 25th. The show, Out of Place, includes paintings from where Blair lived in the United States, with works that reflect special places from her earlier life in New Zealand. Thomas Lord has an exhibition of his work at Olga through September. Thomas is a lecturer in photography at the Dunedin School of Art and this show will have large format photographs and smaller silver gelatin prints drawn from three series. Thomas's works reflect astute observation and reflection with a special focus on modes of time within a single image. Spot the old totara tree during the moonlight. And of course we've interviewed Nigel Brown on a previous show and listeners might like to go back and listen to that. That's um, right. So. And we've also <coughs> spoken to the Eastern Southland Gallery previously on a very early show of Sightlines. What's on there in Gore at the moment, Ross? Well, at the Eastern Southland Art Gallery, an exhibition by printmaker Anthony Davies opens on September the 9th through to November the 5th. Davies was born in England but emigrated to New Zealand after initially coming here as an artist-in-residence at Elim School of Fine Arts in Auckland. He now lives in Whanganui, where he founded Hotspur Studios, producing intaglio, lithographic and serigraphic prints. The show features works from two of his latest series, The Epistle According to St. Anthony and War, What Is It Good For? And also, um, not forgetting Gallery De Novo's salary, They've got a um, another group show that's on there, so head down to De Novo for a fantastic selection of artists on display. Good work. And let's finish up what's on at DPAG this month, Ross. Well, the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, the ever-popular Lookout Loud show continues through October. 
This encourages you and the whole family to use your imaginations and conjure up stories from the rich narrative pieces from the permanent collection. Do you have a work of art in need of conservation or have questions about the artist? Well, if you do, bring your work of art along on September the 7th between 10.30 and 12 o'clock to the Gallery Art Clinic, along with any questions you may have. This is a free clinic for advice from the experts. There's also a free tour for TOTS at the Public Gallery on Wednesday, September the 13th at 10.15. Thanks, Ross. And now it's time for our feature item. Today on Sightlines, we're talking about puddings, women's underwear, feminism, hoarding, the arts of assemblage and jewellery, and the power of pink. If, dear listeners, you are fascinated to know how we're going to pull all that together in one show, then keep listening while we talk with Otapoti Dunedin artist Victoria McIntosh. Victoria, welcome to Sightlines. Thank you. And just to make the show even more discombobulating, before we talk about your life as an artist, I'm going to start at the end by asking you to tell listeners what you're up to at the moment. Ah, well, I'm at the moment in frantic mode, getting ready for an exhibition in Sydney. Everything has to be on a crate on Monday, so (laughs) the pressure's on. No pressure. (laughs) There's eight of us part of a group show called Deep Material Energy, and we're showing in Sydney Craft Week at the Australian Design Centre. So it's really exciting. There's, There's four New Zealand artists and four Australian ones. There's myself, dear friend Kelly MacDonald, Nikki Moa, and Rowan Panther from Aotearoa and then from Nan Melbourne we've got Cara Johnson, Lisa Warp, Inari Kiru and Claire McCurdle. And I think you're funded by a grant from Creative New we Zealand. We were really lucky in the last round to get funding so the New Zealand crew are getting to go over. Congratulations. So, which will be exciting to be part of all the activities going on with Craft Week. Right. And I think that opens on Thursday, the 5th of October? It does. So anybody who's heading over uh, in the next month or so, make sure that you check out Victoria's show. So tell us something about the work that you've created for that show, because I've seen some of it in your studio during the construction phase, and it is gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm working on a series of desserts, puddings. I refer to them as the desserts of discontent. I've started making these pieces about a year or so ago and pulling together my love of silverware, old underwear, (laughs) (laughs) and creating these sorts of very elaborate desserts. So to the uninitiated, the making of puddings from second-hand undies may fall somewhere on the spectrum from unorthodox to just plain distasteful, let's be, let's be clear. But this unexpected assemblage of yours has been a staple to stay with the food theme of work done by you for many years. Tell us about how it started and, and what it references because we need to understand, I think, how your puddings bring all of your personal background and fascinations together into one place. <laughs> that's true, that's true. And they have sort of evolved. And they've evolved from the pers- first pair of underwear I I found in an op shop. And I can still remember kind of seeing them and being slightly alarmed. Because these aren't just any old undies, are they? They though? were the vintage sort of 70s girdles that suck you in and do all those sorts of things and they're this kind of frightening peachy (laughs) beigey quite medical disconcerting color I think I showed you a pair and they actually had like a vulva stitched shape into the front of them and I remember seeing them and going oh 
and being quite kind of repulsed like a and morbid affronted. fascination, isn't yes. it? Yes, <laughs> but I circled the shop and I kept coming back and then finally I took them up to the counter and there was a young woman who, who looked at me with what can only be described as pity as I purchased <laughs> them. I did think of saying they were for an art project, but, at, you know, I was over 40 You're deep in the stage. hole already, let's not yeah. go there. <laughs> so, so, and then they sat in my, my studio for a long time, as often things do. As a collector, you gather things. I'm always fossicking. And sometimes things will just sit until they make sense. You buy them on a gut response. And then they evolved into the handbags, which I first started making out of them. And we can discuss those later. And But I'm, you know, I'm a jeweler by trade with a love of textiles. And I've always been wanting to bring those two mediums together. And so the desserts have been a way to bring together textiles and metalware because you've got the plates the desserts sit, sit on and the, the desserts are then constructed out of the textiles. One of the main sort of visions, shall we say, or inspirations for the desserts has been Mrs Beaton's household management and cookery. And my grandmother had a copy that sat by her chair by the fire for as long as I can remember. She had a sort of later 1950s one, but it was the illustrations from the very early Victorian ones which I'd seen with these elaborate, magnificent desserts, which I just loved. I mean, there was a sort of silly, exaggerated delight to them. They remind me of the sort of the dress yes. woman wore then. Like excessive and over the top and and frilled and detailed and they created these elaborate desserts that sort of looked like the dresses somehow. Yes. And I'd had a picture of those desserts on my wall for again many years they'd sat and then there was finally this sort of moment of inspiration where my found silverware pieces, the textiles all sort of came together. What a fantastic moment that <laughs> yes, must have been. Yes. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about your handbags because they mm. were, as you've said, what in fact came first. And my particular favourite, I think, is Fat Pants, which was bought by the Otago Museum for its permanent collection in 2022. Tell us about those. Yes, and that was wonderful when they bought them. And that was with the thanks also to the Otago Museum and the Bloomheart Foundation, who helped support um, museums collect local work. So fat pants, I mean I think that's sort of become the the sort of catchphrase I call those giant undies that we wear that have morphed into shapewear. But you know, women have been wearing them in one shape or form for for generations. To the casual observer, your puddings and your handbags may appear to be flights of fancy essentially Mm. but your work also has a strong feminist theme running through it what you've said is that it's political rather than preachy what is your message and who is your audience well I guess so much my work is really narrative and I've always been sort of talking about my own life and then that often resonates with other people so your own life you you I think you're very open about the fact that you were adopted yes I think that's been really significant into a 1970s family so you were in the sort of the era where I guess shapewear for women was very much a thing what where did you get what were your ideas did you have conventional ideas about what it meant to be sort of a woman when you were growing up what were the influences that you had yes certainly I mean I grew up with the I think the expectation that I would be a nice young lady which you are my <laughs> young or lady um, <laughs> but I guess in many ways you know I was, I was sent to ballet classes and all these sorts of things and you know I was the kid that just wanted to run around in jeans and and not not sort of 
conform to those societal expectations. Yet I was also a very quiet and shy child. So I think I often use my artwork as that that voice that I don't always find I have myself. And, you know, I was joking to a friend recently that really my artwork is still just me, you know, protesting about going to ballet lessons. (laughs) (laughs) I think you need to let that go, Victoria. It's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) But there is this sort of resistance to expectations of shape and form. And especially, you know, being middle-aged, you know, in the clutches of perimenopause, it's the owning of a less-than-perfect body um, and finding space in that and comfort in that and a place to be. But there is, you know, always that struggle of fitting in. Yes, yes. And finding a way to be. And it reflects in your work. And of course, the other thing that comes through very strongly, which you meld together beautifully, is your inveterate collector self, your hoarding. Yes. What is that about for you? Yes, I've always I've always collected. Yes, I try not to use the H word, but yes, it's it's true. If you have seen the state <laughs> of my studio. Always been um, interested in history. I've often wondered, you know, being adopted, not having that history or knowledge. There's always been a sort of searching back and looking for clues. And so as a child, I was, I, you know, I loved antique shops and junk shops. Even as a very small child, loved old things and collected cigarette cards, all kinds of sort of things. Yes. And it's just sort of morphed and gone on. And so I love anything that carries a sense of history. Along with all the crazy beige I've got in that room, there's also, you know, old enamelware that's dented and scratched and and you get it and you don't know where it's come but it does have this it has a a history it speaks of on its surface and so I think you've said that your love of the found object of your op shopping is perhaps seeking on some level to collect things to invent a history for yourself because just as you don't know your own history you don't know the history of the things that you collect exactly yeah Yeah. so I've always felt a sort of relationship with that that this sort of the unknown. So uh, look at looking at your puddings and people I encourage listeners to go online and, and check them out because they truly are things of just extreme gorgeousness. You it's actually quite interesting because you use the shapewear to make the sort of the blamongy part of the puddings. Yes. But then you use the secondhand silverware and in some cases things like little plastic jelly molds, you actually paint them yep. to tone in with that beige hue to sort of create this overall image of the the beige pudding. Yes, <laughs> terrifying. Uh, yes, uh, there's a wonderful paint company, Rainbow Paints, who are fabulous, who will mix my colours to my specifications. So I, I now spray the metal wear, but they do it. Uh, they're very patient with me. They sound amazing. They're incredible. So going back to the earlier thing about your audience, I I imagine that your work resonates a lot with women who have perhaps undergone the experience of shapewear, which, you know, something which, thanks very much, not Kim Kardashian, is still a thing. What do you observe of that? It's interesting. I think as an artist, you don't you kind of want your work to to be out there for everyone. But certainly, those that resonate with my work and speak to me about my work, it does tend to be an an older demographic. (laughs) (laughs) And that's been really interesting. And I remember giving a talk years ago and talking about the underwear and things like that. And because I was collecting a lot of vintage stuff then, like I hadn't worn it, but I remember my grandmother wearing it. And every generation sort of had a different story of whether it was looking finding it in their grandparents' drawer, their mother, or some of the older women were talking about wearing it themselves. And I remember one woman 
talking about suspender hooks and things like that. So mm. I, I was born in the 70s, you know, teenager in the 80s. So if you're wearing suspenders, it was sort of Madonna and it was choice and it was fashion and it was sexy. But for women, older women who'd had to wear them as, to school and there was no other choice, there was no pantyhose, she said they were just nightmarish. Yes. And the little story I always remember her telling me is that the buttons holding them together would often fall off and they'd put a penny, or not a penny, but the smallest coin to hold them all yes. together. But she said, oh, and some of the poorer kids would use stones. Oh. And it just sort of broke my heart. It was this little bit of social history yes, yes. through just the, the irritation of having to hold your stockings And up. all of that ignited, if you like, that memory by your work. Yeah. Do you get? Do many men have an interest in your women's underwear art, Victoria? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I do have some very dear male friends who, are, who have used words like terrifying. Um, but, you know, I'd like to think my, my work is accessible to all. But it is that kind of, yeah, who resonates with yeah. it and what response it gives them, which and is... And I guess you get a response on a number of levels because your work is in some sense humorous, but it's also a strong message that the shape we are literally controlling people's bodies, making them incredibly uncomfortable, often not even able to breathe properly in order to conform and be you know, considered conventionally desirable. There's, there's a strong sort of feminist message in yeah. there as well. Oh, definitely. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really drawn to about the materiality and, and the shapewear is, you know, it was literally designed to control. And with fashions, body shapes go in and out of fashion. So it's a losing battle. You're never going to win. Yeah. And so there's a whole discussion about um, capitalism and everything in there as well. I think there's also a, an etymological connection between the shapewear garments and the puddings, isn't there? Oh, yes. And actually, I didn't know that. That was Hope down at the Hocken, Hope Wilson, yes. who wrote a little article when they purchased some, that pudding comes from the word batalius, meaning sausage, which I absolutely loved and I didn't know. <laughs> but I had this idea of stuffing a sausage and people stuffing that's themselves into these clothes. pretty much exactly and, what happens. <laughs> yeah. And I just I just thought, oh, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful parallel. I wasn't really aware of. As well as your puddings, you've created other sculptural work, some of it using shapewear as the base, and also with a serious message. And I think Nice Tits is one piece that springs to mind. Can you describe that piece for us? Because I think it might be the one that perhaps some men have described as alarming. Uh, and tell us where it came from. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, that, that became its sort of name in the studio, and it, and it sort of stuck. But it is, it's a dish. Um, it's got two large breast-like shapes on it with, quite pointy nail-like protrusions coming out the top, which are some kind of teller that, that I see, you know, the kitchen makers, it's got teller written on it. I'm really not sure what those things the are meat for. probes or something, yeah, something I think. something, yes. something like that. <laughs> I was sort of mucking it, and so often my pieces just evolved from the shapes I have, and I was constructing this, and I was very much looking at, you know, said stories and things that have happened to myself, and I remember at the age of 14, standing outside the... Dunedin Town Hall waiting to be picked up from a blue light dance and I was the last one to be collected and you know I was 14 I was it was dark and I was quite nervous and some idiot walked past going oh nice tits and I I don't know what he'd hoped a a 14 year old would feel from that but I remember feeling terrified scared ashamed and all those awful things and and I guess it is it's like saying I didn't at that age 
I wish I'd screamed, but I yeah. didn't. I was silent and I was afraid. Yeah. And I sometimes I still think of that man. I mean, did he go on to become everyone's creepy uncle? I mean, probably. Wh- why? <laughs> why is it okay to comment on bodies? No. Well, it isn't. And I, and I suppose you didn't scream at the time, but but nice tits is where you scream back now. It is. It is. And, and you know, it it sort of it changes as you age. Is at that that age, you know. People felt that that was acceptable to, to comment on the shape of your body. I still get that now in forms of fat phobia as a middle-aged woman. Yes. You know, people still think it's okay to comment upon your physicality. Yes. And I suppose this is my little protest through yeah, my work. Yeah. So while your message on one level, and this is one of the things that I love about your work because it's so layered, um, and one level it's tongue-in-cheek and your work is playful, but it's nevertheless a serious one both I suppose personally and politically and and for that reason your work I think has held a number of important collections nationally including both the Otago Museum and the Hocken. Yes, yes, no it's in a few. Te Papa bought a piece many years ago which was quite exciting That's and a- the Auckland Museum also have a piece. Fantastic. And the Dows have a piece, probably one of my, I feel one of my most significant places that they've got my handbag, my choice, which is a handbag where I've appliqued uterus and ovaries on it. And then when you open it inside, there is a collection of crochet hooks and knitting needles. And I made that around the time of abortion reform in New Zealand. And I'd actually visited the police museum in Porirua, which is an extraordinary museum. And I knew they had an abortion exhibit on. And it was seeing the kind of utensils that were used in backstreet abortions back in the day. And it was just like, we can never go back there. Mm, mm. And that which really inspired that piece. But at the same time, I'm using pants, which are funny. And so it is a way of trying to draw people in and they can have a laugh. They can take my work on any level. You can take it on that surface level that they're fat pants that are a handbag. Um, But also, you know, they are made... With a lot, you know, thought. Just say that multi-layered messaging. Yeah, yeah. that was just yeah. what's fantastic about it. But of course, a girl cannot live by cake or puddings alone. <laughs> and I think during your 30 plus years as a practicing artist, you have displayed an impressive range of talents, it has to be said, including jewellery making. And I think you have the distinction of having attended the Otago School of Art not just once, but twice. Yes, a sucker for punishment and debt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, first I, I trained as a printmaker with Marilyn Webb, which was amazing. And and then went back in my 30s and studied jewellery and metalsmithing. Yes. Yep. And I think after your printmaking stint, you'd gone to Auckland and joined Michael O'Brien, the bookbinder, for a time. I did. Michael, who's sort of known these days in Oamaru, but yes. back then he was in Auckland. I love of paper, love of books, and just desperately wanted to learn. So I had two wonderful years learning traditional handbook binding. And it's interesting now, even though my, you know, how my art forms have have changed I still find myself actually using some of those old tools I've still got my book press and various Mm, things mm. that I use and all those skills sort of come into it. So Michael then abandoned you went to Amaru as you've said and I think you took off to Europe for um, to pursue a misspent youth, would oh. be, yes, correct? <laughs> yes, yes, we'll leave it as that. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, I don't know if he'd say he abandoned me, but yes, he came south, and I, having grown up in Dunedin, wasn't keen to come south, so I went first to Australia and then on to the UK right. to do my OE. Yes, yes. <laughs> returned to New Zealand in the early 2000s, 
uh, was in fact on this occasion drawn back to Dunedin to visit your family and decided, I think, to do a night class at Otago Polytech to learn to use metal. And what happened from there? Well, I fell in love with metal. I hadn't actually ever worked with it before. And I absolutely, it, it was just like, wow, I love this. So I then went back and did a four-year metalsmithing degree. Was your family supportive of oh. you after all of your time away, going back to study once again? I can still remember my grandmother with great and serious concern, worried that I would never find a husband there. Um, um, were you looking for a husband? <laughs> well, no one can fault her logic. <laughs> I didn't. But, you know, as a queer person, it wasn't high on my priority no, list. No, no. Um, or, or possibly where I'd recommend finding one. No. <laughs> if it is. So after you graduated, presumably, husbandless for the second time uh, you embarked on being a jeweller for a time and many listeners will I think remember you and your beautiful work from your time at Lua in Lower Stewart Street Um, and I'm wearing one of your patty pan brooches today and of course you're also a professional picture framer working some of the time at Gallery de Novo. Yes, yes, that is where I spend my days and um, wonderful team there, very supportive and very supportive of my artwork as well, which is great. And again, using those sort of skills I've gathered over the years. Okay. Well, what I personally love about your work, Victoria, is that it's satisfying on so many different levels. It's beautiful, it's objectively pretty, sculpturally immensely pleasing to look at. And for many of us who have had a love of things vintage and historical, it's obviously very interesting in that way as well. Thank you for giving us insight into the stories behind your beautiful work. Uh, We wish you all the very best for your very soon upcoming Australian exhibition. Thank you so much. And thanks to you, our listeners. Join us again next month for another dive into the visual arts in Dunedin. If you'd like to hear today's show again or listen to previous shows, you can find us on the Otago Access Radio and DPAG Society websites. If you'd like to join the Society, you can also find a form on our website or join at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery reception. Thanks to contributor Ross Curry and producer Jonathan Quayoff. I'm Sally McMillan and you've been listening to Sightlines. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.